If you ever visited a beach, particularly as a small child, you probably found yourself compelled to go and pick up some of the small rocks along the edge of the water. Maybe as an adult, you look for a certain pattern or unique color or shape, something like a Petoskey stone as opposed to just a little uh, chunk of limestone or something like that. But as a kid, um, there probably didn't need to be much about a particular stone for you to be interested in picking it up. And then you would want to take it home, or perhaps instead of taking it home, you would take some of those rocks that you had collected and, and, and build them into a little structure there at the edge of the beach, at the edge of the lake. And uh, that attitude towards stones, I think, is a good picture of what we see here in 1 Peter chapter 2. God selects people like stones along the edge of the water, not because of what they are, but because of what he will do with them. In 1 Peter 2, 4 through 12, we see God describing both his people and Jesus himself as living stones, not just stones, but chosen and precious stones. Why are they chosen and why are they precious? For those of us whom God has saved, we are chosen and precious because of God's purpose in our lives, because of what he does with us to make us like Jesus, the chief cornerstone. Unlike stones that you find along the beach, we are alive. It's as though that little structure that you built as a kid, the rocks were part of the little castle or building or whatever else it was that you made, and then they came down out of being part of that structure to perform certain activities, and they went back to being part of the building. And so here in 1 Peter 2, verses 4 through 12, we have this picture that as God's people, we are part of the thing that God is building, but that we have an active and a living and an ongoing role in what is taking place. We come down out of the wall almost, as it were, to offer up spiritual sacrifices to God. Then we go back to being part of the structure that God is building. And then Jesus is both the reason for the building, the one who's worshipped in the building, and part of the building as the very foundation, the cornerstone of the building that God is making. If all these things are true, that God has chosen us and we are to serve him, then what sort of lives should we live? And that's what I think verses 11 and 12 get into. So if we're going to summarize all these ideas, here's how I'd put it. Living stones serve your God in holiness. Living stones serve your God in holiness. You are a living stone built on the living stone. We see this in verses 4 through 10. Jesus is clearly a foundation, as it says in verse 4. He was rejected by men, the first half of verse 4, but choice and precious in the sight of God. We consider the attitude of the religious leaders and the crowds, for the most part, in Jesus' day toward him was one of rejection. He can't possibly be the one sent by God because he's a carpenter. He can't possibly be the one sent by God because he lives in Nazareth. He can't possibly be the one sent by God, and they kept up with reason after reason why he was not really the one that God had sent. They rejected him. And yet... Uh, even though they accused him of many things, being crazy, having a demon, blaspheming God, all of these sorts of ideas, in God's sight, Jesus, his son, was choice and precious. He said things like, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And so we see in verse 4 that Jesus is the foundation for what God is doing. Building on that, you are God's both temple and priesthood. You are alive because Jesus is alive. He says, you also as living stones. We see this here in the first part of verse 5, but we also see it in chapter 1, 
verse 3, we've been born again to a living hope. Chapter 1, verse 21, God raised Jesus from the dead so that your faith and hope are in God. Chapter 1, verse 23, you have been born again. And chapter 2, verse 2, like newborn babies, grow in respect to salvation. So you are alive because Jesus is alive. Why are you a living stone? Jesus is alive. You're connected with Jesus, so you also have life. But you are being built up, it says, as a spiritual house. We see this in the second part of verse 5. And I think that this parallels what we see, for example, in the book of Ephesians. And this is why, even though I would argue that 1 Peter was written to Jewish people in the first century, the same thing is true for us as Gentile believers. Ephesians 2, verse 19, You are no longer strangers and aliens, but fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole building being fitted together is growing into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. And so just like Peter is saying to Jewish believers, you are part of this living structure that God is building, and you are part of what God is doing, God, through Paul, says similar things to the believers at Ephesus, and we'll see in a moment also to the church at Rome. And the, the parallel, I think, to what Paul says in Romans 12, 1 and 2 is this idea of being a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God. If Jesus comes and has fulfilled the law, then we are not part of something that is exactly the same as what God was building with Moses in the Old Testament. God was building in the Old Testament an ethnic nation. People were born into particular families and because of the families that they were born in, they had particular roles in that nation, whether it was to be a priest, whether it was to serve as soldiers, whether it was to serve as farmers and craftsmen and all those sorts of things. Those things were associated with family lines. Certain families, for example, the Levites had the job to sort of clean the temple. Certain families of the Levites had the job to be the priest. And so even in the nation of Israel, there was a very specific subset of people who did very specific tasks. Whereas in the church, it's not by birth into a particular family or a particular people group. And it's not limited to that very narrow group of people to be the ones who serve as priests and ministers to God. Instead, I think Romans 12 makes it clear that every believer is called in God's sight to serve both as priest and sacrifice. The reason I say that, Romans 12:1 says, Therefore I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. That phrase, spiritual service of worship, is basically priestly service. You offer yourself as sacrifice as your priestly service to God. And if God said that to Gentiles in Romans 12, he is saying it here to Jewish people in 1 Peter chapter 2. And so all of us together, Jews and Gentiles alike, uh, as it says in Galatians, there is neither uh, Jew or Gentile, slave nor free, male or female. When it comes to the service in God's sight, all of us are collectively called to serve God, giving ourselves as a spiritual sacrifice and serving God as a holy priesthood. So not only is Jesus the foundation, and not only are we called to be God's temple and priesthood, 
But I think this emphasizes that you are God's house and God's servants only if you believe. And this is where the majority of this is focused here in verses 6 through 10. God appointed Jesus to be the foundation and basis of our faith. Verse 6, I lay in Zion a choice stone, a precious cornerstone, and he who believes in him will not be disappointed. This is, I believe, a quote from the book of Isaiah, chapter 28. And when Isaiah is speaking these words, he has in view this one who is coming, the Messiah. And when he speaks of him, he's saying, this is the one chosen by God. And this is set in contrast to the priests and leaders in Isaiah's day. What was their attitude? We have made a covenant with death, with Sheol. We have made a pact. We will be delivered from God's judgment. God says through Isaiah, what will be your security when my judgment falls is not schemes that you have come up with on your own. We were talking about this in the Sunday school hour. The people of Israel, the northern tribes of Israel, set up this parallel mockery of the system of worship that God established. Here's God's laws, God's temple, God's priest. Here's all the things, the sacrifices I want you to offer. And they said, no, we don't want God's law. We're going to make our own laws. We don't want God's king. We're going to set up our own king. We don't want God's law, uh, God's Temple, we're going to build our own temple. We don't want God's system of sacrifices. We're going to do our own system of sacrifices. We don't want God's priests. We're going to appoint our own priests. Jesus is the only way to God. You cannot come up with your own way of coming to God and expect that God will accept you. Uh, When we come to the New Testament, this is expressed in Acts 4.12, that there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. You cannot be saved by the name of Buddha. You can't be saved by the name of Joseph Smith. You can't be saved by the name of some prominent practitioner of Satanism or of uh, any number of other religions and cults that exist out in the world. There is only one path to God, and one way that is acceptable for you to come before him, and that is through Jesus Christ. And so when it says in Isaiah 28.16 and in Acts 4.12 and in 1 Peter 2.6, Jesus is the cornerstone, believe in him. God is saying pretty clearly, Jesus is the cornerstone, believe in him. You cannot believe in anyone else. You cannot approach God in some other way. Jesus is the only way of proper belief and being accepted before God. For those who believe then, Jesus is the cornerstone and unshakable foundation of their faith. We see this in verse 7. The stone which the builders rejected became the very cornerstone. Actually, that's the, the next phrase. Verse 7, this precious value then is for you who believe. And this is a quote from Psalm 118, verse 22. And in that psalm, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day which the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. O Lord, do save, we beseech you. O Lord, we beseech you, do send prosperity. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Does that sound familiar? That's what the crowd shouted when Jesus came, and then they quickly turned to crucify him. But for those who have believed and continue to believe in Jesus... There is precious value in finding him to be the unshakable foundation of your faith. But there is also 
what it says in Matthew 21, verse 42. Did you never read in the Scriptures the stone which the builders rejected? This became the chief cornerstone. This came about from the Lord, and it is marvelous in our eyes. So there's precious value for those who believe. 1 Peter 1.4 You have an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away. And verse 7 You have faith that is proven, that is more precious than gold, which is perishable, that will result in praise and a glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Verse 19 You are redeemed with precious blood as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. This precious value is for those who believe. And yet for those who reject, Jesus is the boulder over which they stumble and fall and are destroyed. Verse 8, he became a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. Isaiah chapter 8 is where this comes from. And it's fascinating that it comes from Isaiah 8. It's been a while since we looked at it together earlier this year. But the context was, God says to Ahaz, I'm going to give you a sign. Ahaz is like, God, I really don't want you to estrange yourself. I don't want you to ask you for a sign because I don't want to test you. Ahaz is an idolater making pacts with pagan nations and concerned about other pagan nations who are going to attack him. And yet he says in this pretense of religious spirituality, God, I don't want to trouble you to have to, to do a sign for me. So God says, here's the sign. In less than two years, these kings that you fear are going to be destroyed. And also, I'm going to do something that the whole world hasn't seen the likes of, which is I'm going to send one born of a virgin to bring salvation, not just for you, unbelieving Israel, but for all people who will turn to him. That's Isaiah 7. In Isaiah 8, it goes back to the immediate context of judgment for Ahaz and for the people, that if they do not repent, the judgment will fall on them as it is falling on the ones that they fear who are right around them. And so there is this description of the son, presumably of Isaiah, who is swift as the spoil, speedy as the prey. And then the other ones who uh, are born after. But in the middle of that chapter, the people are all whispering amongst themselves. There's a conspiracy. There's uncertainty. What's going to happen? We don't know. Isaiah says, don't fear this people, or God rather said to Isaiah, don't fear this people. Don't regard them as the ones you need to be concerned about. Regard God as holy. He shall be your fear. He shall be your dread. He shall become a sanctuary. And so that is what God called them to do. To the houses of Israel, a stone to strike and a rock to stumble over and a snare and a trap for the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Isaiah, you believe, but those who disbelieve, a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. What happens? Exact same descendants of the people who were unbelieving in Isaiah's day, exact same word from God. If you believe, God is your refuge. If you disbelieve, God is the basis of your destruction. What was happening? Religious leaders in Jesus' day, we reject we will have our own scheme. We will make friends with the Romans. We will stay in their good favor and life will be okay for us. We will manipulate the people to have power over them and we'll stay in charge and life will be good for us. Isaiah said, don't trust in that, trust in God. Peter is saying, 
Don't trust in what they are saying. Trust in God. Jesus is a rock. But a rock is security for those who build their house on it and destruction for those who fall on it or stumble over it. And so the same person of Jesus Christ is both deliverance for God's people who believe and destruction for God's enemies who reject him. What should our response be to this? I think our first response should be to remember that God's purpose prevails regardless of man's sin. Whether we recognize that Jesus is the rock or not, that doesn't change the fact of who he is. And whether people obey God or disobey him, that does not affect what is true about God, and it does not prevent the unfolding of his plan. And so when it says, to this they were appointed, this did not take God by surprise, and it is not something that can prevent happening what he wants to have happen. And I've mentioned a number of times Acts 2. The crucifixion of Jesus was an act of sin by wicked people and yet brought about the salvation that God desired to accomplish in the world. Their sin, without in any way casting God as unholy, is able to be used by God to accomplish the salvation of the world. Here are people who have rejected God, at least at this point, in which Peter is speaking. Um, And if you come across someone in this moment that is actively rejecting God, what should you do? Call that person to repentance. Point out to them, like it says in verse 8, here is exactly what this verse is saying. If you reject Jesus, he is destruction for you. We need to call people who are in that mode to repentance. But we also need to hold out hope that not all of those who in a given moment that we look at are going to finally end in that destruction. You and I have have brief snapshots of people's lives at different points along the way. If you looked at Paul the Apostle's life when he is heading toward Damascus, what would your attitude have been? He's bound for hell. Ten days later, What should your attitude be? Don't know what happened, but he is fervently following after God now. In that short space of time, our perspective changes. So from God's perspective, here are people who are going to end up in eternal destruction. Here are people who in the moment seem to our view certain to head up to eternal destruction. And here are people who are actively following after God. But some of those who in this moment appear to be actively following after God are going to end up separated from God forever because that's what Matthew says. There are those who will say to me, Lord, Lord, and then he'll say, I never knew you. And some of those who, to our perspective, look like there's no possibility of them being in God's presence are actually going to end up there someday because either they do actually know God even though we don't see any immediate evidence of it or... God is going to do a work in their lives later on that we haven't yet seen, and they're going to be right with God. And so, the reason that I'm emphasizing this is because I think our job when we come to a verse like this is take comfort that God is going to carry out his plan faithfully and plead fervently for the souls of those around you. Because the last part, 
unraveling who is in which category at which point in time is something that God has not ultimately given us the ability or the responsibility to do. Now, is the church supposed to assess the profession of those who are part of the church? Yes. There's an ongoing process at which if someone says, I'm a Christian, and they're gathered with a local assembly, and they stop acting like a Christian, there's this whole process that we go through with the hopes of making sure that they are actually believers or that in the long run they are following God faithfully. But even in that, all we are working with is our best assessment in that moment of where that person is. You and I still can't see that person's heart. And so our job is to rejoice in God's plan, see God's purpose prevail, and to plead with people. Uh, Paul speaks of this in Romans chapter 9. He says that there are those who did not pursue by faith, but through it by works have stumbled over the stumbling stone, just as it is written, I lay in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and he who believes in him will not be disappointed. And then he gets into chapter 10 about the proclamation of the gospel, in which those who have turned away from God hear the message of salvation, and some of them will yet believe. Jesus is a rock of security for his people and of destruction for those who reject him. As living stones, God's people are chosen to serve him and to bring him glory. We see this in verses 9 through 10. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. We see a similar description in uh, the book of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 10, we read this. Uh, you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. For yet in a very little while, he who is coming will come and will not delay, but my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back to destruction, but of those who have faith to the preserving of the soul. So he says, you who believe, precious value. Those who reject, destruction. And then he sort of goes back to, but we are confident that God is at work among you. You are these that God has chosen and called out to serve him and to bring him glory. First of all, as a race, a priesthood, a people for God to possess, we see this all the way back in the book of Exodus, chapter 19. And we read there in verses 5 through 6, If you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my own possession among all the peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the sons of Israel. So God told Moses to tell the Israelites, If you follow me and if you serve me, you will be my treasured people and you will serve me. What hope is Peter holding out to those who no longer have a temple, no longer have a really a, well, short, very shortly, no longer have a temple or a priesthood or all of these sorts of things? you still have opportunity to serve God. You still are valued in God's sight. In a few short years after Peter writes these words, the temple at Jerusalem is going to be destroyed, the priesthood abolished, the possibility of the people of Israel ruling themselves seemingly a, a distant hope, a distant memory. And they're going to come back to these words. And they're going to remember 
that God still cares about them, they are still God's people, and they still have opportunity to serve him. Not only that, but they are those who have opportunity to proclaim God's mercy and bringing them from darkness to light. And this is true of us as well. We have opportunity to serve God, and we have opportunity to proclaim the glory of God in what he has done from saving us out of darkness and bringing us to his light. Colossians 1.13, For he rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And then this promise in verse 10, you were not a people, now you are a people of God, you did not have mercy, and now you will have mercy. And we've seen this as we've gone through the book of Hosea. God's people were behaving as though they were not his people, and God set them aside in judgment and discipline for a while so that they would experience what it was like to be not God's people, but then he restores them to being his own people. They didn't receive mercy, and then he restores them to receiving mercy. We're going to see that as well in 1 Peter 2, uh, a little bit later as well. So if you know Jesus, you are a living stone being built into God's house on the foundation of Jesus as the living cornerstone. So if this is true, by direct statement to Jewish people that Peter is writing to, and by application to us as Gentile believers, seeing the same sort of truths laid out in Paul's writings to the Gentile churches, if you are then a living stone being built into this great structure that God is making, valuable in God's sight, opportunity to serve Him faithfully, then the second main point we see is in verses 11 and 12, as a living stone, serve your God in holiness. As a living stone, serve your God in holiness. There are uh, two commands that we see here. The first is to abstain from fleshly lusts, and the second is to keep your behavior excellent before unbelievers. So first of all, because you are an alien and stranger to this world that hates God, you are to abstain from fleshly lusts. Again, going back to the book of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 11, it talks about the fact that here were people who could have uh, Hebrews 11:13. These died in faith without receiving the promises, having confessed that they were strangers and exiles in the earth. Those who say such things make it clear that they are seeking a country of their own. And if indeed they had been thinking of the country from which they went out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. Why are you and I to abstain from fleshly lusts? Because we are aliens and strangers in this world. We see this in 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse 4. You may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. And 2 Peter 2.20. Um, that we are need to be aware of the dangers of that if we escape the defilements of the world by the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and are again entangled in them and overcome, the last state has become worse than the first, for it would be better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than having known it to turn away from the holy commandment handed on to them. You and I are to be aliens, not to be, but we are aliens and strangers. But here is our daily experience. We build houses and we live in them. We have relationships with people. We have 
work that we do uh, at various points throughout our life. We have things that we enjoy about this life. We eat food and we, we drink things to sustain our life. Our lives are very much wrapped in in our day-to-day existence in this world in which we find ourselves. And so we forget that it's not our final home. I think it's really easy when we see this idea of lust to, um, to see it only as a, um, like a sexual desire kind of thing. When it says, abstain from fleshly lusts. But there, the, the word in its most basic sense just means a strong desire and has a negative connotation throughout most of the New Testament. There are so many things that you and I can have that strong desire for. It can be a strong desire for the entertainment that the world offers us, which is often wrapped up in the more typical way that we think of as lust, but... Sometimes it's just the world holding out to you the opportunity to find what you want out of life in a way that's less demanding than God. So think about, think about going back to what we were talking about in the Sunday school hour, what Hosea is saying to the people of Israel. You guys, what do you want? You want fertility? both for your crops and yourselves, and you want peace. Okay? If you want to prosper by whatever definition you establish, what's an easier way to accomplish that? By some sort of one-time or periodic act of paying money or of orienting your entire life around God and what he wants from you? Think about Simon the Magician. He didn't want the experience of the Holy Spirit in his life. He wanted to buy it as a gimmick to make his own name great in the book of Acts. And Peter says, pray for repentance that you're not condemned because that attitude is completely opposite to what genuine belief in God looks like. We cannot buy God's favor. And so there's a degree to which The world appeals to us, and we're supposed to not return to that way of thinking that's a strong desire for the ease and comfort of life that we think that we can accomplish by buying our way into it. Because what ends up happening? You sell your soul in the process. Jesus said, what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his own soul? And here it says, abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against the soul. Now, is there a sense in which if you and I lust with sexual desire after people around us, that that is one of the manifestations of what he's talking about that we need to put off? Absolutely. But the problem is if we see that as the only one, then it's possible for us to say, well, I don't have that kind of appetite. I'm good with God. When in reality, something that's just as damaging to our souls, like greed or pride or something like that, is the strong desire that seized our hearts 
and we're still God's enemies within, but we say, well, I don't do that sin, so I must be okay. The reality is any strong desire that supersedes our desire for God is on its way to becoming something that will destroy our souls. And the difficulty of this is it doesn't even have to be a sinful thing, right? If you desire your neighbor's wife or his car, that's one thing, right? That's kind of more obvious. I think we know that that's bad. But what if the people around you are so much the focus of your attention that they are more important to you than God? That too is something that corrupts your relationship with God and is a fleshly lust that wages war on your soul. Sometimes in connection with this, we think that the solution is, well, if I love the people around me a little less, then it doesn't take much effort to love God more than the people around me because I only love them a little bit. And God is not calling us to be mediocre in our love for the people around us. He's calling us to be supernatural in our love for Him, which is something we can only do with His help. So you love your spouse or your kids or your friends or whoever else around you at this level, Peter would say you need to abound more and more in your love for them, but your love for God needs to even supersede that, and that becomes impossible on our own, so that's why we want to drag the bar down for the people around us so that we have hope of attaining love for God on the proper scale, but God doesn't call us to that. He's saying love the people around you more than you already do and love me even more than that, and you can only do that with my help. But this strong desire cannot be ultimately and finally finding its object in anyone other than God, or else we run the risk of what he's talking about here, that we need to abstain from these things that wage war against our soul. Sometimes they are sinful. Sometimes they're fleshly like, like they're actual sins, like greed and lust and envy and pride and all of that, right? But sometimes they're even for good things, and those things get in the way of our relationship with God. And so abstain from fleshly lust because you're an alien and a stranger to this world that hates God and abstain from fleshly lusts because lusts in the way that we typically think of them in a negative sense fight against your very soul. A few pages over in the book of James, here's how James describes what happens. Each one is tempted when he's carried away and enticed by his own lust. Then when lust is conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. Lust is deceitful, lust is destructive, and we cannot give in to it. And if we're going to have a proper attitude toward and avoid all these things, what has to happen? We have to have a mindset that says, I am in this world, but I'm not really at home here. How many of you have ever gone to someone's house they don't know very well, and they're like, make yourself at home? You're like, I believe you, but it's really hard to do because I don't know where anything is. I don't know if it's okay for me to come in here with my shoes on. I don't know if I'm sitting in someone's seat, if I go sit in this place in the living room or at the kitchen table or whatever else. That sense of unease is what he's talking about here. Never feel like you quite fit in in this world because the moment when you do, it's probably because you've started down this course of loving this world more than loving God 
giving into some sort of desire more than you desire God. So recognize that you can never be at home here, though you enjoy it and, and live in it and experience God's blessings. I mean, Ecclesiastes makes it very clear. God gives you a lot of good things to enjoy in this life. But hold them like you'd hold a rose, loosely. Why? Because there's thorns on it. There's danger. So hold this world loosely. There is immense and amazing beauty in this world and in this life, but don't hold on to it too tightly. Don't ever lose that that vague sense of, I don't quite fit in. Because when you do, you've let your guard down. And this is something ultimately God has to accomplish in our hearts and lives. It's not something we sustain by our own power. Like I was saying a moment ago, it's not love other people around you less so that you can love God more. It's not, I just have to keep up this vigilance all all the way. It is what Paul says in Galatians, which is the only way that you hope to defeat the flesh is by the power of the Spirit. So the solution is not more you trying hard, but more of God's Spirit sustaining you. And the only way that's going to come to you is through diligent prayer. And then verse 12, live excellently before unbelievers. They're going to slander you as evil. We see examples of this to Gentile believers in 1 Corinthians 4. Verse 13, when we are slandered, we try to conciliate. We have become as the scum of the world, the dregs of all things, even until now. Paul knew what this was like. They mocked him. They ridiculed him. They rejected his words. We see this similarly in 1 Timothy 5, um, uh, 14. Well, we'll come back to that one later, perhaps. Um, in 1 Timothy 6, 1, it talks about living as a servant under your masters as a slave in the proper way so that the name of our God and our doctrine will not be spoken against. Um, There is an opportunity for us to be slandered because we're living in an improper way, which is where the 1 Timothy 5.14, I want younger widows to get married, bear children, keep house, and give the enemy no occasion for reproach. Wives and slaves and everybody has opportunity to live in such a way that they are giving a bad name to what it means to follow God. But there is the reality that the world will slander you whether or not there's any basis to do so. Titus 2 says, In all things show yourself to be an example, verse 8, so that the opponent will be put to shame, having nothing bad to say about us. And similarly in Jude. So people are going to slander you if you follow God but there should be no basis for their slander. They're speaking evil of you to others. Because of your good deeds, God will get glory, even though people slander you. Now, to some extent, but definitely at the day of Christ's return. So when he says, so in the thing which they slandered you, they may, because of your good deeds as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. What is the day of visitation? When God returns in judgment... When Christ returns, as Paul says in Acts 17, he's appointed a day in which he'll judge the world by the man whom he has appointed, his son Jesus Christ. When that day comes, the world around you should be able to look at your life and say, we lied against you your whole life long, but now we see Jesus coming and we realize that what you said was right. Think about Noah. 
Noah preaches righteousness, and the people mock him. That idiot's building a boat. What in the world is he doing that for? For a hundred years, when the flood comes, what do they realize? Noah was right. We should have mocked him the whole time. And so we don't do this because we want people to think well of us, but we do it knowing that our faith in God will be vindicated because we are believing what is true and we are following God. Don't let sin be a basis for people to slander you and have an accusation that sticks, but instead let and participate as God produces good fruit in your life to replace the evil fruit of your past. This, because of your good deeds, they glorify God. Paul, uh, not Paul, but Peter is saying this to people who formerly were going their own way. Jewish people, we say, oh, well, Jewish people couldn't possibly be doing such terrible sins that Peter is saying that uh, now they need to have these good deeds instead. Think about Paul. Paul was a Jew. What did Paul do? Paul bore false witness against his neighbor. Paul killed people. Paul threw people in jail without a cause. Like there's all of these things that Paul was doing that were very sinful that then were later replaced by good deeds that were a basis for people to glorify God and see the change that God had accomplished in his life. And Peter expects the same of the people that he's writing to. You went your own way, but now you're producing good works. You were doing your own thing, but now God has done this in you. And to the extent that you remember that this world is not your home and you cannot be ruled by the desires that ruled you before. Perhaps for Jewish people it was pride. Perhaps for Gentiles it was what we think of more typically as lust. Regardless of what it was that ruled your life before you knew Jesus, you keep putting that off and then you live in a way that even though people mock you, oh, you're a Christian, of course you have to act that way, that sort of thing. When the day comes that Jesus comes back, they recognize that all of their mocking was pointless and that following Jesus was worth it. Paul says it this way in 1 Corinthians 15, if the resurrection isn't real, what's the point of having put yourself to all these trouble, all this trouble and given up all these things when you could have enjoyed the pleasures of this life? But since Christ is raised, it's all worth it. And at the very end of 1 Corinthians 15, what does he say? Remember that even though people around you may forget your faithful service to God, God's not going to forget it. And that's what we see here in 1 Peter 4.12. And so as you go throughout your week, remember Peter's illustration of pebbles on the beach. You are picked up by God so that as he builds you into some remarkable structure in his kingdom, the world will marvel. But this will only happen if you and I remember the world is not our home and keep saying no to the lust that would dominate our hearts by the power of the Spirit, that we live out in obedience and service to the truth and becoming more and more like Jesus each day, things that are good deeds so that people will glorify God. Living stones serve your God in holiness. Let's pray. Father, as we look at these truths. I pray that we would find in them not a sense of further mm, condemnation for those who are prone to be very aware of their own sin, but a sense of the hope that you provide that this is a work that you're carrying out in your people and this is something to, to look forward to and to see your hand in. 
For those who, on the other hand, uh, struggle with being blinded to particular sins, I pray that the sober warnings of the passage would sink in. That you are security for those who really follow you, but let us not deceive ourselves that we're following you if we're going our own way and living for ourselves. And the reality is, Lord, there are moments when each of us probably is overcome by conviction and a sense of our own unworthiness, and there are moments when we are stubborn and blind to our own sin. And so in whichever moment we find ourselves, Lord, I pray that you would produce the proper effect in our hearts. To see how you have unfolded this coming of Jesus from the beginning of history even until now and what you will yet do is something that we should marvel at. But Lord, help us not to be so caught up in the details of what your plan looks like that we're content studying charts and maps and timelines and we forget to go to our neighbors and ourselves and our families right around us and urge them to look to you as a rock of salvation and not a rock of destruction. You are a holy God and you call us to be a holy people to serve you. So, Lord, we ask that you would motivate us to serve you, not to rest content in the idea that perhaps we are connected with you and so life is good, but to actually fervently and faithfully serve you because that's what you made us to do. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.